You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. ready to offer a highly ambitious trade deal, including zero tariffs and zero quotas. There is no need for a free trade agreement to involve accepting EU rules on competition policy, subsidies, social protection, the environment, or anything similar. I think there is a significant risk of what some people are calling no deal 2.0. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Sark. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, surprise, surprise, we're talking about coronavirus today because it is the issue that's absolutely dominating at the moment. And the government's chief scientific advisor says it's looking at the isolation of whole households during the current outbreak. The amount of confirmed cases in the UK has more than doubled over the last 48 hours. We've also had our first death in the country after a woman in her 70s with underlying health conditions passed away after catching it. Well, Patrick Vallance, who is one of the government's advisors, in fact their chief scientific advisor, says the more extreme action of self-isolation does need careful planning. It's important that these measures aren't taken too early. So it's difficult if you go too early, you ask people to do things which aren't effective for too long, by which time it becomes difficult to get the right motivation to do it. If you do it too late, then obviously you've missed the chance to make the big difference. So the situation is, once again, another day, another development. And let's bring in John Lauman, a daily fixture on this show now as this story continues to grow. He's Bloomberg's health reporter. He's going to help us out with some of the issues here. So we had our first death in the UK from the virus, John. How does that correspond with the uh, the estimate around fatalities that we had from the chief medical officer yesterday? So uh, Chris Whitty had talked about a uh, death rate that would probably be, as he said, it would probably top out at about 1%. Um, we just had, what is it, 115 cases, I believe, is what we're up to right now. So it corresponds very closely to that. So in that sense, I mean, certainly very tragic about this person um, who I believe was uh, in Reading and um, uh, who, who died in hospital there, uh, but uh, not totally unexpected. Okay, now, I mean, let's talk about the global picture. 100,000 cases or getting there, I guess certainly getting there at the moment that we know of. Um, how does that correspond to previous things? We talked about swine flu, SARS, MERS. I mean, what, what sort of ballpark are we in? Yeah, so it, it's very difficult to tell right now because we don't really know. Again, you know, we have a, test, a story out about testing today on the system. We don't really know how many people have uh, the, uh, uh, the virus. Um, we're 
probably never going to test everyone who does have it. And uh, the way that um, scientists go about this is eventually what they'll do is they'll do what they call serological studies. Um, They'll find out how many people actually have antibodies to it. These are people who may have been exposed at some point in the past. You might not still be able to find their virus in their blood, but they would still have antibodies to it because their their body set up defenses to it. So that's how they go about sort of like backtracking, backfilling, and finding out, okay, getting an estimate of how many people were exposed. um, Millions of people caught swine flu, all of the, uh, you know, maybe even more than a billion. So um, right now we only know about 100,000 people who have been um, diagnosed with the disease, it's it's bound to grow a great deal. And for weeks now, there have been murmurings around the P word, and the Singapore health officials have gone there. They say this looks like a global pandemic. What's the deal? Is it or isn't it? Yeah, it, it, so <clears throat> um, the WHO has talked a lot about this. Uh, a pandemic is really means a disease that is uh, growing in an unrestrained, it's spreading in an unrestrained way around the world. It's still difficult to call call this that, I think, you know, in my mind anyway. Um, uh, You have areas where it seems to be expanding quickly. It's not expanding quickly in every country where we know, 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 uh, where where we see it. So I think we still, uh, we still have to hit a few more benchmarks before we do call it a pandemic. Not not a pandemic quite yet. Thanks very much. Uh, John Lauman there, Bloomberg's health reporter, joining us once again to bring us up to speed on where we are in all this. But the toll on companies in the UK is already pretty tangible. Uh, You've got HSBC and S&P Global sending home staff after confirming cases in their offices. Others are testing backup locations and considering contingency plans such as working from home. And meanwhile, the government announced on Wednesday during PMQ statutory sick pay would be expanded to include all days affected by the coronavirus. Before that, the policy was that it's usually from the fourth day that you call in sick and there are various other complications around that. So for more to talk about this, we're joined by Kevin Rowan. He is the head of organisation and skills at the TUC the Trade Unions Congress. Uh, Kevin, you must be pretty pleased with the government's expansion of sick pay. Well, it's certainly a step in the right direction. We, we've been asking for some time to reform statutory sick pay and uh, paying SSP from, from day one is a big help for those workers who qualify for it. But unfortunately, two million workers don't qualify for it at all. And um, paying it from day one is, makes no difference to them at all because they still don't get it. And of course... Statutory sick pay is only £94 a week, so it's still quite a hit uh, for a lot of workers. But it's a step in the right direction, and we heard from uh, Matt Hancock uh, last night on Question Time that there is uh, it's like a discussion in government about how they can reform statutory sick pay further, which we're looking, looking forward to working with the government well, on. Yeah, Kevin, I was going to pick up on that, because I remember the, the Prime Minister very memorably said no one should be penalised for doing the right thing, talking about self-isolation. But low-paid and temporary workers, I mean, who picks up the tab for them? Well, well at the moment, nobody, and, and, and that's a real concern for us. I mean, I think there is uh, a, a real sense of responsibility among workers and among employers to try and do what they can to prevent the, the, the spread of this infection. Obviously, it's, it's a real public health issue and, as, and as you were saying, a real economic issue and, and a, a real personal economic issue for workers. And if people are having to make a choice between making ends meet the, uh, through you know, their, uh, trying to maintain their pay levels or taking uh, absence from work with very low pay or often no pay, 
then workers are going to often make the choice to go to work when they're ill, and we want to do our best to avoid that. So we've seen some employers already saying uh, that they're going to pay workers full pay uh, in, if they're in isolation. Yeah, but Kevin, it, welcome it, that. if they don't, I mean, sh- in the end, should it be a public duty? Should it come out of uh, of tax? Should it come out of pub- of public funds to pay those people for, as Boris Johnson said, doing the right thing? Well, we've called on the government for exactly that, for an emergency fund that allows people to kind of take the right steps to avoid the spread of the infection. We haven't seen the government move on that. The the day one payment of SSP is a step in the right direction, but there are several other steps the government can take to make sure that workers aren't penalised. And in the long term, uh, we try and minimise the economic impact as well as the health impact. Isn't that going to be a huge amount of money, though, especially as we head into a budget? Uh, We've got big infrastructure projects uh, and we've got Brexit just around the corner. There are so many variables to this. Well, it is. It, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you what that cost would be. It's impossible to tell. We don't know how, how uh, fast and, and uh, how, how far the, the, the virus will spread. But I know that the cost of not acting on this will have really long-term economic impacts and long-term impacts on individuals' health as well. So there is a, a, a difficult balance that the government has to strike. Uh, but we think it's reasonable for them to take what practical steps they can now to enable workers and enable employers to try and minimise the spread. OK, well, let's move away from the finances uh, in, the, in this, Kevin, towards um, what happens in terms of safety. Because, I mean, in the end, you know, people, uh, this is a safety issue. This is a health issue. Uh, from what you're hearing, are, are you impressed that, that employers are taking this seriously in terms of safeguarding their employees? Well, I mean, the reality is it, it, it's a very mixed picture. We, we convened a meeting of health and safety specialists from unions yesterday, uh, and they were uh, uh, clearly uh, identifying some good practice where they've been involved with employers, employers risk assessing properly, making sure that workers uh, uh, understand the steps that they need to take. And indeed, as some of the examples you've identified around uh, allowing workers to work from home to kind of almost self-isolate, if you like, but carrying on work. But we're also hearing lots of uh, stories about employers not really taking this seriously, providing people with... You know, inadequate face masks and saying that solves the problem. Can, can you name some? I mean, or sectors or names of companies? To, to... It, 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 there's, there's no one size fits all. I mean, certainly, I mean, the, the conversations we were hearing yesterday, Royal Mail taking uh, a very sensible approach in, in conjunction with the uh, uh, Communications Workers Union. We've seen uh, Greg's, uh, for instance. Uh, we've seen uh, ISS, Sodexo, all taking very proactive action to try and make sure that their workers are able to prevent the spread but uh, uh, you know we've got other companies uh, that, that that really don't appear to be taking this which you, which you to... won't you won't name and say who they but are I, I don't think that's fair i think what what we're trying to do is talk to those companies uh, and suggest that there are better way uh, to kind of manage this this situation and hopefully they'll respond to that and learn actually from the good practice that some of the more decent employers are, are using. And what about the health and social care sector? There's talk from the government about bringing people out of retirement. We are talking on the programme yesterday about the fact that these people are likely to be very old and therefore vulnerable through their age, but also through their exposure to people who may have coronavirus. Are you concerned about those particular people? Well, I think absolutely. Uh, uh, workers, that all workers really, that are... Uh, public facing in public facing roles are arguably at, at greater risk uh, than, than workers who don't have that public facing role. So where uh, there are, uh, if like specific things that those those employers do to put extra measures in to make sure that they're almost kind of checking work the, the workforce more regularly, making sure that they're kind of monitoring what's happening in the workplace. And there, there could be a real challenge in terms of 
uh, staff shortages around these areas. And this is all part of what we're uh, urging really the government to have not just a, a public health plan, but an economic and public services provision plan in place. This is, you know, as your previous kind of speaker was saying, we're at the early stages of what could be a really massive national emergency for us. And we need to make sure they've got the economic measures right, we've got the kind of public health measures right, but also the kind of public public service provision aspects of this as part of that plan as well. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look at some of the other stories that are making news. Roger, what have we got? Well, Brexit spending is an issue. Government departments spent more than £4 billion on Brexit preparations, according to the public spending watchdog. The National Audit Office said that the Home Office, the HM Revenue and Customs and the Environment Department accounted for more than half of that money, which was spent on preparations for leaving the EU. And the figure includes spending on staff, external advice and advertising. I've got an update on the government's housing fund. The flagship housing infrastructure fund announced in 2016 that it's delivered far more cash to London and southern England than to the north of the country. This is analysis uh, by the Labour Party that's being cited in the Financial Times report. And that research showed that on a per head basis, the fund has delivered just £18 to the northeast and only £4 to Yorkshire and the Humber against £98 to London. The levers underline the challenge Boris Johnson's government faces in meeting its commitment to level up the UK by investing more money in public services and infrastructure in areas of the north and the midlands. Certainly the rhetoric is there from the government and I suppose this also reflects partly the cost of housing in places like London compared to the north. Meanwhile, the beleaguered Home Secretary, Priti Patel, has found some support. Nearly 100 people have uh, supported her by writing a letter to the the Daily Telegraph. They defended her against what they call an extraordinary campaign of gossip and smears. They say, while Pretty Patel is a tough, assertive leader, she has never lost her temper. And this is, of course, in response to the bullying allegations, mm. which have come from, I think, at least three government departments in which she has worked. And now, of course, from her former permanent secretary, possibility of an industrial tribunal, which could certainly bring up a lot of things I guess the government doesn't want. But the Cabinet, cabinet Office is looking into the series of bullying allegations and I should add that Pretty Patel of course denies them all. Always important to include. Right let's crack on with our coronavirus special. The government has said stopping flights to the UK would only delay the spread of the virus by a matter of days with a growing number of cases diagnosed in the UK we're being advised to carry on as normal while washing our hands regularly singing happy birthday twice. I've mastered it. I sing it once to me and then again to me. The government's chief scientific advisor Patrick Valance says they're doing all they can to protect the people. The key thing is during uh, any progression to think about protecting the vulnerable first and foremost. So there are some simple things that can be done. There are some more complicated things. We're modelling all of those and we'll base it on scientific evidence. 
Well, for more on all this, we're joined by Sean Griffiths, who's chair of the Global Health Committee at Public Health England, the advisory body. Sean Griffiths, welcome. Thank you very much for being with us. Um, is there a sense at the moment that this virus is moving within the UK almost uh, without any option towards a policy of, uh, let's say, mitigation rather than containment? Containment effectively isn't working because clearly the disease is spreading. Uh, the disease is spreading. We don't know that containment isn't working. We just know that it's not working sufficiently to have prevented some uh, outbreaks of community disease. And uh, th- therefore, we start to feel more anxious when we see the numbers going up because we can't necessarily trace where the disease has come from. Uh, the uh, the message is very much about, you know, keep, keep on as normal, but do wash your hands. Uh, the message is about you know, um, using tissues, uh, the catch it, in it, kill it phrase that's around. Use tissues, throw them away properly. Uh, as you say, wash your hands for long enough um, and uh, keep surfaces around you clean. All of that will help. It would help anyway to reduce any virus disease, but it does help to uh, reduce the spread of coronavirus. And our anxiety about coronavirus is that it's a new virus and we don't quite know where it's going to go. You used Patrick Valance's uh this uh, quote this morning just to uh, emphasize that this is about taking the science, using the science, making best decisions with the science to protect uh, particularly the vulnerable in society. Um, I saw some nasty media reports about mutation and you were talking about not knowing where it's going to go. Is that a real risk that we get a second strand that's potentially different, takes more time to understand, it's got more time to spread and it could be more dangerous? Well, there is a paper that's been published that shows that there are two strands uh, my my main um, basis of knowledge is that I, I chaired the Hong Kong government SARS inquiry back in 2003, and much of what we're seeing now is, uh, is, is as happened in uh, in SARS. And, and the anxiety is that the that the mutation that the virus may mutate, and then you may get a more virulent disease. But there is a much better coordinated scientific effort, uh, global scientific effort this time round, which is enabling um, this sort of data to be shared. But we will only know what it means as we track and monitor the disease. That, that's very interesting what you were saying there, though, about there being two strands to this at the moment. So we're saying this virus has two forms. Is that correct? There's a paper in the literature that, 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 that describes this. I think a lot of our learning comes from Wuhan and uh, and. Uh, so a lot of the information that's coming out, so we're calculating, uh, um, you know, that we know the shape of the molecule, the type of the disease. We know all these bits of information because it's been shared scientifically with the main focus of research being from Wuhan, where they've had such a significant number of well, cases. And so this is a paper that was in the Chinese, that's been published from China, which describes two types of virus. What the significance is, we'll only know over time. So we won't know whether these have different effects. I mean, it's interesting that some people show no symptoms and some people obviously suffer badly. Is it possible that this could be because they are suffering from a different strand of the virus? Uh, I doubt that. I think we're probably all suffering from the same strand, but it affects people differently. It's obviously, uh, we, the figures that are used are that 80% of people will have a mild disease and uh, of the remaining 20%, a fifth of them will have serious disease and um, about 1% uh, case fatality at the current time. So what we know is that that many people can have this disease and not um, suffer too much from it. And we know that children that seem to be less likely, uh, not, not that they don't have it, but they're less likely, 
but they can also be carriers, so contact between kids and their grandparents, for example, is not without risk. However, uh, I think that we just need to keep taking the advice that uh, is being produced um, because it is a based, as I say, on the science of what we know at the current time. And, and on that note, you talk about the mortality rate at 1%. Presumably that's an evolving model. Does that take into account what we've seen in, in Wuhan and elsewhere around the world, or is that tailored to the UK? Because I presume different cultures uh, w- w- and, and sort of different levels of wealth around the world will, will bring about different mortality rates. Ab- absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's based on the science and, and um, the modelling that's been done um, uh, it, uh, which takes into account global data. There, there are two two elements uh, of, that are quite interesting. One is that when you look at the case fatality rate in Wuhan, it is higher than in the rest of China. It's higher than the rest of Hubei and, and higher than the rest of China. So the the average fatality is, is higher because you put into play the figures from Wuhan. Uh, and Wuhan, of course, the disease was where the disease, was, uh, uh, we think it's the epicenter, we think it's where it emanated, uh, and we know it's where the majority of cases, where it took hold. So uh, Wu, the, the, the mortality rates are different, and Wuhan was not expecting it. Um, therefore, in, a, in an environment where you're expecting to have an epidemic, you can get much better prepared. And so preparations have been much better uh, say in the, in the UK, there is a great deal of preparation gone in, which means that there is a greater hope of being able to flatten the curve of the epidemic. The second thing about, um, as, as you said, that it'll be culturally or, or, or geographically dependent is one of the great anxieties has been that this virus will take hold in uh, lower in- middle income countries where health services, health systems are already uh, inadequate and stretched. And to have a hit of a virus like this one uh, in, in, a, in a poorer environment where the health service really is struggling um, way more than uh, we would have any understanding here, that, that is one of the real reasons that it's a global protection, not just a protection of, um, uh, on, on an individual country basis. Are you thinking there of Africa in particular, where we do know there have been, there's been at least one case in Nigeria and one, I believe, now in South Africa? Yes. Uh, in fact, Nigeria and South Africa are, are, are the health systems there are probably better than in some of the other countries. Imagine if you put it into the countries that suffer from Ebola, who are already struggling, and we still have Ebola uh, in in some countries. You, you add this in as well, the, the, the need to do surveillance, the need to do contact tracing, the need to uh, change the economics, all of that, that can hit poorer countries far worse and that's why we're anxious about protecting them. And what about the time scale here in the UK? What do you expect in terms of the development, the containment and, and ultimately we hope this all passing over? What I think I'm asking is, are we going to be able to go on our summer holidays? <laughs> well, um, if you, you know, you need a crystal ball to do it accurately and the modellers have all modelled different scenarios but I think if you listen to um, Professor Chris Whitty yesterday when he was talking at the select committee, he was very much of the opinion that there would be a peak of about three to nine weeks, but he thought it might be coming a bit later. And that's in the worst case scenario. So he was describing worst case scenarios. So in this worst case scenario, uh, if even if there was a peak, it would probably be declining by the time we got to the summer holidays. But a lot of the advice at the moment is 
don't change your plans. Obviously, don't go to Italy at the moment. That's not that wouldn't be a sensible thing to do. Uh, but uh, you know, many other areas, it's no different from being in the UK, or, or maybe even less of disease than in the UK. Uh, and so, uh, carry on with life as far as possible in a normal way, being prepared to change as and when the numbers increase and um, we find out more about the signs. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.